Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's the food issue, our look ahead to the Thanksgiving holiday, a time to eat, drink, and be merry, and to be thankful as well. There was a time we blamed turkey for making us drowsy after a big Thanksgiving meal. These days, Luke Burbank tells us, a new trend is making us feel mellow and very cutting edge. Call it weed, cannabis, or chronic. More and more, it's what's for dinner. The herb has so many different flavor profiles that the possibilities are endless. It's a whole new idea of eating your greens. Cannabis cuisine, ahead on Sunday morning. Another trend, cocktails without booze. Mocktails, they're called. Served up in style this morning by Califasane, while Serena Ultra will share something cool. Tis the season for cocktails on the rocks, but not just any cocktail. We're gonna do some day drinking without the booze. Without the booze. Without the booze. And not just any ice. When we do our drill press machine spears, we also do hand cut. What do you need a hand cut <laughs> spear for? Just more like a geodesic oh, spear. Later on Sunday morning, a sobering combination. As Ukrainians struggle for the survival of their country, Holly Williams tells us about the fight on an unlikely front. A Ukrainian chef does battle against Russia's invading army from the kitchen. You want to cook some borscht? I'd like to cook some borscht. Have you been doing this before? Never before. A lesson in surviving war and making borscht coming up on Sunday morning. And there's plenty more on our menu. It's Sunday morning's food issue, November 20th, 2022. We'll be right back. 
It's all the buzz in the food world. Luke Burbank explores the expanding universe of cannabis cuisine. Welcome to High Cuisine, the world's largest cooking competition show. If you've turned on the TV lately, or maybe found yourself in a certain high-end kitchen somewhere in America, you might have noticed a new green on the menu, one you might even be able to smell before you taste it. There is a revolution taking the cooking world by storm because of this star ingredient. Pot, weed, chronic. Now that cannabis is legal in some form or another in more than half of the states, some of its top chefs are finding ways to integrate it into their recipes. Suffice it to say, the pot brownie has come a long way. There is such a huge bridge from the brownie to where we are today. We're cooking racks of lamb, we're making intricate desserts, we're doing 10 course tasting menus that are strain specific. Now there's different levels of extractions and distillates that you can use in order to achieve the effect without the flavor or with the flavor. Chef Miguel Trinidad is known for his time on the Vice show Bong Appetit. These days he hosts semi-clandestine semi-legal pop-up dinners through his company, 99th Floor. Dinners in which everything is infused. Where actually is the cannabis? <laughs> it's in many different stages. In the demi for the steak, we took some of the beef fat and infused that and then put that back into the demi. Um, here is some cannabis butter. This has been cooked extremely low temperature for a long time because I wanted to draw out a lot of the terpenes without making it taste too weedy. Terpenes are the chemical compounds in cannabis that give it that characteristic funky smell and taste and can make it a challenge to cook with. Even for noted Portland cookbook author, Lori Wolf. Learning how to cook with it is kind of learning how to cook with a really dreadful tasting spice. Wolf has written five cookbooks on the subject, earning her the title back in 2017 of the Martha Stewart of Edibles. When Wolf and other chefs cook with cannabis, they say the key is to be extremely precise with the dosage going into, say, a butterboard that's actually made with canna butter. Cheers. Cheers. And Wolf says the key when eating infused food is to be very patient in waiting for the effects to set in lest you go on a trip you didn't mean to buy a ticket for. Because it can take two, it can even take three hours on occasion, depending on when you've eaten, what your metabolism is like. For me, it's about the delicious meal and the cannabis is like extra. Back in Brooklyn, Tiffany Spann is attending her second 99th floor cannabis dinner in two weeks, which she'd found out about on Instagram, naturally. Can you feel the vibe shift as the night goes yeah. on and people are starting to enjoy people themselves. People talk to each other. Yeah, like everyone started loosening up because you could, I could see the whole table. So yeah, people do start to get louder and happier. Yeah. As the night wore on, Chef Trinidad's dinner moved into full swing. A parade of sumptuous plates were served. The music of Wu-Tang Clan bumped through the speakers. It truly was a meal for both the body and the soul.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. As planet Earth is heating up, a growing number of farmers are pulling up stakes and moving north, chasing cooler temperatures their crops need for growth. Ben Tracy has a report on how climate change is changing where and what we plant. The most unusual thing about Joe Franklin's 78-acre citrus farm is that it really shouldn't be here. When I first started with it, people couldn't believe me when I told them it was grown right here in Georgia. They didn't believe me. Oh, no, you don't can't, you can't grow that here. But Franklin now has 12,000 trees growing fruit in the middle of Georgia. Grapefruit, Meyer lemons, tangos, gold nuggets, satsumas, Georgia kisses, bingos. You'd normally expect to find hundreds of miles south in Florida. So I'm not going to find a Georgia peach anywhere on this <laughs> land? No, probably not. One of the main things that drove my decision to plant them was the fact that it is so much warmer now than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I know when I was growing up, golly, in October you always had a couple of frosts. In November you usually had a freeze. That doesn't happen anymore. Did you think of that as climate change, or did you just say something's different here? No, I thought of it as climate change. And it's, it's happening. I mean, there's no doubt about it. A month of rainless days and temperature above 100. Farmers have always dealt with the whims of Mother Nature. But now climate change is changing what they can grow and where they can grow it. Like everyone knows, of course, there's global warming, but then what does it mean? So Himanshu Gupta is the CEO of San Francisco-based startup Climate AI. Their platform uses machine learning to identify climate risks for food companies and farmers. The stakes are high. Worldwide, its estimated crop yields could decline up to 30% by the year 2050 as the planet warms and climate change fuels more severe drought and flooding. A lot of crops, uh, not just in the U.S., but also in Africa, India, are already seeing the impacts of climate change. If we move into the future, these areas will have a significant shift. Gupta showed us how the cranberries on our Thanksgiving tables will likely have to be grown significantly further north in the coming decades. It's going to be riskier in a lot of places to grow certain crops in the future, but this is helping mitigate some of that risk. Absolutely. And using that, you can tailor your recommendations 
for the food companies or seed companies or for farmers. Dramatic shifts are already happening. There's now coffee from California and fine wines from England. But while warmer temperatures may benefit some crops, they can devastate others. In Georgia, the state's famed peach trees require significant winter chill in order to bloom come spring. So this is uh, one of your weather stations? Yes, we have 89 stations across the state. Pam Knox is an agricultural climatologist at the University of Georgia. She says winters here have warmed on average more than three and a half degrees since the 1800s, enough to put many varieties of peaches at risk. Researchers are racing to develop new warmer weather varieties to take their place. As warming continues, should we expect crops to kind of migrate north in some fashion, things that needed to be further south in the past? There will be some migration. There's some limitations to that. The kind of soil you have, whether you have access to irrigation, what you've grown traditionally, because if you're a peach producer, you're probably not going to suddenly switch to cattle. Joe Franklin's bet is paying off, but he knows a changing climate likely means more losers than winners. For this to be working here means it's probably not working so well for somebody further south. Right, exactly. Do you think about those folks? I do, and I feel for them. And it's a gamble, it's a risk you take, you know. It's one of them things. Like vinyl records, what goes around comes around again. Soda shops are back. Jonathan Vigliotti samples the latest trend in soft drinks. Can I do a small Italian job? Of course. And can I add on a pump of tiger's blood? Okay. Some strawberry puree and whipped cream. In St. George, Utah, four hours south of Salt Lake City. I'm about to get a sugar high. It's perfectly legal to drive while drinking the handcrafted bubbly pass through these windows. That's great. I'm excited for it. And so are thousands of other people. Just do it with Diet Mountain Dew. Who every day flood similar shops in town with names like Pop, Fizz, and Thirst for their daily cup of dirty soda. What? is dirty soda. Dirty soda is basically any type of soda you can think of or sparkling water or water and it's infused with the best syrups and flavor shots. So from syrup to like a puree to cream to frozen fruit. Nicole Tanner knows dirty soda because she coined the phrase when she opened her first shop, Swig, here in 2010. How many cars are coming through this location alone? This location probably does about 750 cars a day. Coconut and Dr. Pepper, okay. that's our dirty. Yep. That's a dirty Dr. Pepper. Since Swig served its first dirty Dr. Pepper 12 years ago, hundreds of competing shops, almost all with roots in Utah, have opened their doors. So endless summer is pomegranate, grapefruit, and Mountain Dew with fresh lime. <laughs> okay. Dirty soda's divine status can be traced in part to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which doesn't permit the consumption of alcohol or hot caffeinated beverages like tea and coffee. But in 2012 clarified, caffeinated soda was fine. You could call dirty soda a new take on an old recipe that first appeared in American pharmacies in the late 1800s. 
Why would there be a soda fountain in a pharmacy to begin with? It was a way of hiding the taste of medicine. It, was a way it of all started with that spoonful of sugar, says Judy Levin, author of a book on the history of fizzy drinks. But soon, soda became a treat as elaborate soda fountains sprung up in nearly every town. For not very much money, you leave the ordinary world and you go into some place that is mirrored and sparkling. Pete Freeman serves up soda floats. Secret chocolate syrup. And egg creams at his Brooklyn soda fountain pharmacy. And now what we have is something called a pink poodle. He credits prohibition and out-of-work bartenders with turning soda into a special occasion. It's not just about sugar and it's not just about refreshment. It's so much more than that. It's, it's about satisfying your need for connection. It's about satisfying your need for fun. Eventually, people figured out how to bottle fizzy drinks, turning the soda fountain into a relic. But from Brooklyn to St. George, people are lining up for a little nostalgia with a twist. We want to be the best part of their day and the fun part of their day. David Pogue will be telling us about some small wonders. To begin, he explains why baby carrots have gotten really big. You gotta love baby carrots. Don't have to wash them, don't have to peel them, don't have to cut them. But here's the big secret about baby carrots. They're not actually baby carrots. They are pieces of carrots cut into two-inch pieces and peeled and put in the bag. Jeff Huckabee is the CEO of Grimway Farms, the biggest carrot grower on earth here in Bakersfield, California. You have one, two, maybe three, sometimes four actual cuts. The original idea first took root in 1985. My father and I owned a company called Mike Urosic and Son. Farmer Dave Urosic loved growing carrots, but hated throwing away almost half the crop. 35 to 45 percent of our carrots were rejected because of cosmetic situations. Bent, broken, that's what kind of drove me is to say, okay, how do we do something with that product and make it sellable? Throwing away tons of your crop was one problem. Another was the time it took to cut and peel carrots for cooking, at least according to Urosic's then wife, Terry. Why can't you do something like this so I don't spend three hours in the kitchen making it? The Eurosics repurposed a bean cutting machine to chop the carrots into two inch pieces ready for cooking. But focus groups revealed a surprise. Customers weren't interested in cooking them. They don't want them for cooking. They want them for snacks. So the Eurosics retrofitted this plant to start processing baby carrots. Bunny Love was their brand, which Grimway later bought. Once the baby carrots hit store shelves in the early 90s, U.S. carrot consumption more than doubled. And today, 70% of all carrots we buy are the baby kind. So everybody wins. The farmers sell more carrots, we snack more healthfully, and nothing is wasted. Everywhere you go, you see baby carrots. Do you take pride every time you see that? It's nice to still walk in a store and see them there. Tell my wife, that was me. Man, we did that, you know. Time for a postcard from Italy, a real slice of life, served up by Seth Doan. 
This bustling city in the shadow of a volcano has a passion for food which explodes onto the street and has been exported around the world. Ecco, bravo. Naples gave us pizza. Cooked in about 90 seconds at an intense 800-degree heat, pizza is the soul of Naples, says master pizza maker or pizzaiolo Antonio Starita. At 80 years old, he knows his wood-burning oven and whips up a margarita pizza, mozzarella, tomato, and basil. One popular story says it was invented for Italy's Queen Margarita in the 1800s. Starita embraces tradition, but did not like making pizza at first. You didn't like I liked it, he admitted, when I saw the money coming in. <laughs> Pizza's popularity means big business. Clear to anyone who's scrolled social media and seen the growing number of ads for those home pizza ovens. I shouldn't say so, but it's so, so easy to make. Chef Stefano Caligari, who has restaurants in New York and Rome, says far from being a threat, those home ovens may actually boost business. It helps? Yes. How so? Because it makes you closer than with pizza. And even people, they challenge. Oh, it's better pizza I bake than this famous pizzaiolo, you know? The beauty of pizza is its simplicity, he says. You can eat it with your hands. And there are few rules. You must know that pineapple on a pizza is something oh, like devil for Italian pizzaiolo. Pizza, cacio e pepe. He uses an unusual ingredient, ice. It melts and he tops it with pecorino cheese and pepper, a twist on the dish cacio e pepe. We will see how actually it's made through Neapolitan pizza. Because For home pizza makers, pizza, the Verace Pizza Napolitana Association, which usually teaches pros, offers an online class with oven maker Uni, whose sales soared during the pandemic. Fior di latte is the ideal cheese. Joining from the U.S., a student in Virginia and Stephanie and David Javier, who set up on their back deck, bringing a bit of Naples to Queens, New York. Isn't it easier just to go down the street and order a pizza? <laughs> I guess it, it is convenient, but there's a little bit of being able to eat what you mean, satisfaction from that. It's not just beginners using these ovens. Pizza chef Salvatore Santucci, who has huge wood-burning ovens at his pizzeria in a suburb of Naples, is the garage, eh? showed us where he makes the dish when he's at home, his garage. Una pizza napoletana cuoce per calore, non cuoce per fiamma. A Neapolitan pizza cooks via heat, not flame, he said. Whether we have a gas, wood, or electric oven, if all three are at the right temperature, the pizza cooks exactly the same. Uguale. But back at Starita Pizza... It doesn't compare. No, no, no comparazione. This traditionalist was not convinced. He's made pizza for a pope and has an almost religious reverence for this. As long as I'm alive, he said, I'll never let them take away my wood-burning oven. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. 
It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. One of the most acclaimed restaurants in the world is celebrating a very special birthday. Martha Teichner has saved us a table at Le Bernardin. When you buy fish, what you're looking at is the eyes. Dinner at Le Bernardin starts here, at New York City's vast wholesale fish market. You can eat it like that, sir. At 4 a.m. That's like Slimy slime. Yeah. That means the fish is super fresh. Eric Repair, the restaurant's chef and co-owner, wants to show off the quality of the fish Le Bernardin has bought here for more than 30 years. Ever since the seafood restaurant's founder, Gilbert Lecoz, started showing up to hand-pick the best in the market. They're like, who is this crazy French guy? In 1972, brother and sister Gilbert and Maggie Lecoz opened their original 25-seat Le Bernardin in Paris. The opening day, it was a catastrophe. I was by myself in the dining room and Gilbert by himself in the kitchen. Things got better. <laughs> By the time Le Bernardin left Paris for New York in 1986, it had two coveted Michelin stars. Within three months of opening here, it received a really rare four-star review from the New York Times. I'm going to spread on, on it some foie gras. Raw fish dishes like the tuna carpaccio are part of Le Bernardin's DNA. I'm happy that you do like mm. That's delicious. <laughs> Born in the south of France, Eric Repair trained with some of Paris's most famous chefs before coming to the United States. Gilbert Lecoz lured him to Le Bernardin. I entered the kitchen in 1991 on June 10, 7.40 a.m., and I look at my watch and I said, remember this time, this is very special in your life. And so it would prove. Three years later, Lecoz died suddenly at 49. I was very emotional. Gilbert was a friend. And a couple of days later, after the shock, Maggie sat with me and she, she said, I would like for you to take the kitchen. I told him, Eric, I don't want to have the menu of my brother. You have to do your own menu with your style and your creation. And he did. 
with spectacularly successful results. When Michelin began awarding stars in the United States in 2005, Le Bernardin got three, the maximum. It's never lost any. As it celebrates its 50th birthday, it's on multiple lists of the best restaurants in the world. Let's go, give me the spout. No pressure, right? But surprise? I'm driven about being content. That's what I want to do in my life. Be happy, be content, and then if I am happy, I can make others happy. Every morning, I cross Central Park. Repair is a Buddhist. Now 57, how he runs Le Bernardin is an extension of his approach to life. Cooking is a lot of craftsmanship, and it's art when you are at the level of fine dining and when you are expressing something. Not necessarily about flavors, but expressing ideas that can have an impact on our society. Yes, a four-course dinner costs $198. Sausage. But the flip side is giving back. Unused food that otherwise would go to waste is collected and taken to City Harvest. Okay, let's see the pineapples. New York City's massive food rescue program. Look, those are turkeys. Eric Repair is vice chairman. The entire room is filled with turkeys. Last year, City Harvest distributed more than 100 million pounds of donated food to New York City's shelters and food pantries. I'm using the restaurant to try to make a difference. As for Le Bernardin at 50. It's a work in progress. If I was satisfied and not think it's a work in progress, I'm behind, I'm bored, it's time to go. It's one of the biggest trends at bars everywhere, cocktails without the alcohol. Califasane has our toast to the mocktail, followed by Serena Altschul's look at some really cool ice cubes. I'm sitting here in one of the biggest breweries on the East Coast, right? Yep. We're top 20 craft brewer by size in the country out of over 9,000 craft breweries. But there's one thing you won't find in all these cases of craft beer. Alcohol. It's one of the biggest oxymorons out there. Great tasting non-alcoholic beer. Bill Schufelt and John Walker founded Athletic Brewing in Connecticut in 2017. Last year, sales hit $37 million, and they're on track to double that this year. John said, we're not launching commercially if this isn't indistinguishable, award-winning craft beer. In the last five years, non-alcoholic beer sales have increased 70%. 80% of our customers drink alcohol at other times during the week. Is this pretty similar to what a full alcohol brewery would be doing? 100%, all the same. What we do is traditional brewing through and through. We tweak a degree here, a degree there, but we wind up at a fully fermented product that is under 0.5%. This is not bad. Eric Asimov is the chief wine critic at the New York Times. We asked him to taste some of the latest non-alcoholic beverages, including an athletic beer. It's super hoppy. There's a lot of flavor in there. I thought you might hate this. No, I quite like it. Have you noticed in the last five or 10 years that there are more and better non-alcoholic drinks on the menu? Oh, absolutely. No good cocktail list nowadays is complete without uh, at least a few selections. Do you think there's more room to grow? It's gonna increase. Dry Januarys are a big thing. 
thing that's been extended to October. I'm worried so. it's going to take over the whole calendar. Uh, <laughs> with some people, it is. You have people thinking intently about their, their health and deciding maybe that alcohol consumption is not a great thing. We're going to do some day drinking without the booze. Cameron Winkleman is head bartender at Manhattan in New York City. One of the country's foremost wine experts. Are you feeling skeptical? A little bit, yes. This is Pinot Noir that's been dealcoholized and carbonated. If you were to drink a good sparkling wine that's made naturally, the bubbles would be cascading all over the mouth. And this feels more like a soft drink. That's if you compare it to wine. If we're comparing it to other non-alcoholic wines, right. I think this is a really good effort. It's not overwhelmingly sweet. Alcohol is part of the natural process of making wine. Yeast transforms the sugar in the grape juice into alcohol and carbon dioxide. If you don't have alcohol, you're putting together parts that don't really have a unifying element. Asimov says some of his favorite non-alcoholic drinks are the ones that don't try to imitate wine. This is actually a gooseberry ferment. Wow. It's almost very floral. Mm -hmm. I really like that. He also liked some of the alcohol-free cocktails. A mass riverine seedlip that's been infused with mango, grapefruit, yuzu, and coconut water, and topped with the mango matcha meringue. Oh my, that is delicious. So concentrated and yet light and refreshing. The growth in this market seems to be as an add-on, right? Not, I'm gonna give up cocktails and only drink mocktails, it's like, I don't want to have four cocktails, but maybe I could do two and two. That's as I understand it. I, <laughs> it's not my personal experience, I confess. What's your personal experience? I just drink less. But that's not really the American way. The American way is let me figure out a way to consume even more. If I don't want um, an alcoholic beverage, my tendency, except for, for a cocktail, is to drink water. Water? Yeah. Now I've heard everything. I love water. <laughs> This is Serena Altschul. At 100 Weight Ice in New York City, every morning starts with a harvest. No soil or sunlight here, just 300 pounds of crystal clear, heavily filtered frozen water. Founder Richie Bacato's crop of choice, ice cubes. Ice was always a focus as a bartender. For Bacato, Ice is not a supporting character, but the main attraction. If you're taking pains to include a top shelf spirit and you're making your own syrups, your ice component, your frozen water component should be just as important. That's amazing. From spears to spears to good old two inch cubes, each piece of ice here is precisely sawed. Once packaged, the rocks are delivered to local bars and restaurants. Here's the start of the winter harvest. Long before custom cubes, ice came from lakes and ponds. In the 19th century, New England businessman Frederick Tudor popularized production of the cool commodity. For many, the frozen chunks would be used to preserve other goods, though only those with deep pockets could afford them. As advances in refrigeration and freezing evolved, so did the availability of mainstream ice. 
GE was early in refrigeration in the 20s, so no more ice blocks delivered to keep your ice chest cool. Sam Duplessis is the Senior Director of Product Technology at GE Appliances in Louisville, Kentucky. We've continued to innovate in the ice. We had our first automated ice maker in the 50s. Nowadays, GE's perfected a different kind of ice. Down in the south, it's called restaurant ice. On the east coast, it's called hospital ice. And then in the west coast, they call it pebble ice. But it's all the same. It's a little nugget that uh, people like to chew on. Nugget ice. It can be addicting. So this is what all the hubbub is about. It's not totally frozen, and that water content allows it to be easier to chew. They're like mini cubes. They're mini cubes. Mm. It allows it to cool the drink faster and then also absorb that flavor. Nick Gilkey is an engineer with GE Appliances, where they create and track the development of their frozen products. There are about 60 different ice makers in here. More traditional shape. I would love this. No matter which way you carve it, ice's glacial progression has been revolutionary. Mo Rocca is visiting a New York City institution that's no question a cut above. At the edge of Manhattan's Little Italy sits a butcher shop virtually frozen in time since it opened in 1923. I joke many times and I say it's half museum, half butcher shop. I should like charge admission because so many people come in and they're just like, is this real? Jennifer Prezioso is the butcher, owner and fourth ever employee of Albanese Meats and Poultry following in the footsteps of her grandpa, Mo, and before him, her great-grandparents. This is my great-grandma's handwriting. It's a very old book, I guess you could say, of orders. This is from March 1st, 1934. Back then, this is where you came for fresh meat. This whole block was full of butchers. They used to sell the cattle at Canal Street. Albanese's, which turns 100 next year. Enjoy. Good to see you. Keep the rest. Oh, thank you. Is the only butcher shop left on the block. I could make franchise with the butter and lemon. And Bonus has been coming here since she was a kid. Come here when you think of old times. If this feels like the set of a TV show, well, it has been. We got the rabbi! In fact, Prezioso was acting on stage when Grandpa Mo started slowing down and she stepped in to help out. <laughs> she was like, well, I thought you want to act. Like, that's what you love to do. And I was like, I do, but I also love to be here and tell our story every day. <laughs> what started as driving her grandpa to work turned into an apprenticeship. And then Mo popped the question. He said, so... When I die, are you going to take over the store? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I could do it. Had you been thinking about that, or did it just suddenly come out of you? I think maybe a little of both. <laughs> In April 2020, Mo Albanese, just shy of 96, died after contracting COVID. You never feel like you have enough time. <laughs> 
um, with those kind of people that you love. And so Jennifer Prezioso is today manning the shop solo, sort of. I think he's up there very antsy like this, waiting. Like, let's go, come on, Andiamo, what are we doing, what are we doing? I feel him excited for what's to come and we have a new lease on the store, so we're gonna be here for a few more years and I look forward to that too. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Some Small Wonders from David Pogue. You see them in fancy restaurants, food magazines, and windowsill farms. They're microgreens, barely sprouted seedlings. Nobody knows who first added a microgreen to a dish, but if you want to know who made microgreens a thing, it was probably these guys. You were irritating me. You kept saying, oh, that's not the right I kept size. telling them, I want them bigger. I want them bigger, you know. Virginia chef Craig Hartman and his friend and vegetable supplier, Michael Clark, who's been described as a... Mad scientist farmer, yep. One fateful day in 1993, Clark asked if Hartman needed anything for his restaurant. She grow me these baby greens, and he says to me, he says, hey, Craig, well, what is a baby green? And I said, well, it's a lettuce, and they're small, they're babies. Four weeks later, Clark returned with three plastic bags full of these. I'm like, Mike, I'm like, Mike, what the f is this, you know? <laughs> so I said, no, 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 baby greens, they're about this long, they're, and he's like, but Craig, this took me a whole greenhouse. 21 days, yeah. But anyway, I used them that night for my salad course. Hartman recreated that fateful salad for us. Microgreens, olive oil and balsamic vinegar, smoked duck. We put a few pieces of this gorgonzola dolce around. Oh my gosh. The first microgreen dish ever served. By pure coincidence, a writer for a national restaurant magazine was in attendance that night. And she's showing me her place. She goes, what is this? And I said, it's the newest thing. We call them microgreens. <laughs> you, you made that up on the spot? I made it up on the spot. Her article introduced chefs all across the country to microgreens. 
and you'll sell all this, right? Yep, this is all sold. And Clark's simple misunderstanding led him to start a full-grown organic microgreen business. We have micro cilantro, imagine that on a taco. We have micro broccoli, which is... Of course, chefs had been cooking with bean sprouts and alfalfa sprouts since the 80s. But microgreens come from a later stage of plant growth and many more species. This is a, a red, red Russian kale. Have there been any experiments that didn't wind up tasting that great? Micro hay didn't work. The grass was just grass. Well, look what you've unleashed upon the world. Well, <laughs> some people might not be happy about it. You know, some of the young chefs, they'll be like, ah, oh, these microgreens. Wait, know? why? Is there a downside? <laughs> You're the guy that made us use tweezers. Thank you very much. It's one of the traditional dishes of Ukraine, a soulful soup providing a lot more than nourishment. Here's Holly Williams. Yeah, what are you? Andrew, oh. We first met the ebullient Yevgen Klopotenko in Kiev in February, before his country went to war. He's Ukraine's most famous chef, acclaimed for reviving old recipes from before the Soviet era and serving them up to a fashionable crowd in his award-winning restaurant, 100 Rokiv. His signature dish is borscht, the hearty vegetable soup that's enjoyed across Eastern Europe and Russia, but which Klopotenko asserts originated in Ukraine. Ukrainians and Russians have a lot of shared history. They have some shared culture. In recent years, you guys have gone in very, very different directions. Yeah, we are running. You're running. Like we're, we're running, we want to show to the world that uh, we are Ukrainians, we are not Russians. You're different. Yeah, we're different, totally different. But even as we slurped on our stew, over 100,000 Russian troops had massed menacingly along Ukraine's frontier. It's our territory and it's like they will never let us go. Never let us go. Just nine days later, Vladimir Putin ordered his army across the border. Part of Putin's justification for the carnage was that Ukraine didn't really exist as a nation. 100 Rokiv closed for just three days before reopening as a military canteen. Good to see you. Good to see you too. By July, Klopotenko's restaurant was back in business. Russia's army failed to capture Kyiv, and this past summer we found a strange peace in the Ukrainian capital. Life looked surprisingly normal. You don't know where you will do, will, when you will be dead because rockets can fly in every second. So you have to live your life and you have to do the best what you can. Live for the moment. So trust in the army and do the best what you can. Klopotenko was just as frenetic as before, and he'd kept busy with another project. He succeeded in lobbying the United Nations to list Ukrainian borscht as an endangered cultural tradition. This borscht, it means that we are fighting back. Not more borscht of the Russian Federation, it's only ours, Ukrainian borscht. You have to take the he gave us a lesson in how to make it, starting with blood red beets. You have to have passion. I've got passion for eating. One of the great ironies of Putin's invasion is that it's made many Ukrainians more certain of their national identity, 
more adamant that they are not Russian. And the wars made Yevgen Klopotenko a roving cultural ambassador, travelling the world to promote Ukrainian food, including at this international culinary fair in Paris. It's not a role he aspired to before, but he told us it's his way of defending his country. If uh, soldiers will come back from the war and here going to be nothing, for what they're fighting? They're fighting for the good life. You're fighting for your identity? Yeah. That's it. You will feel that we are different, that uh, we are strong, that we have our music, that we have our religion and we have our food. And that means that we are Ukrainian. As is so often said, ours is a nation of immigrants, enriched by a mosaic of cultures, traditions, and on occasion, as Jim Axelrod finds out, a delicious slice of brisket. Deep in Brooklyn, at David's Brisket House, they know from good corned beef and pastrami. Somewhere, my grandmother is smiling. <laughs> She'd be smiling, but quite surprised by one choice in particular of the deli's owner, Riyad Ghazali. So you don't use kosher meat? No. What kind of meat do you it's use? Halal. Halal. Halal meat is prepared according to the laws of Riyadh's Islamic faith. Like kosher meat, the animals are raised and slaughtered ethically and humanely. People who walk in here, they expect a certain quality of product. Absolutely. Do they get that with halal meat in the same way they would get Absolutely. with kosher meat? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not just Brooklyn where you'll now find halal meat where you didn't before. Those halal guys food trucks in Manhattan have grown into 94 halal guys storefronts in 17 states. You'll find halal meat at Poppy's Tacos in Los Angeles. At True Boys Barbecue in Texas. And at Angelo, an Italian spot in Washington, D.C., Chef Jamal Bouzid's latest. Whether it's Moroccan food or French food or Italian food. I can food, do all. But it will always be halal. Halal. Always halal. If I choose to do Chinese, I will do halal meat. It went from 200 restaurants then to 10,000 today. No one's documented the explosion of halal meat's popularity with a sharper eye than halal food app developer Shahed Amanala. The vast majority of the new restaurants that are popping up on our site are, you know, Nashville hot chicken, gourmet burgers, Korean food, but with that halal touch. Sometimes when it comes to an ethnic or religious group and intolerance, food walks point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Breaking down all the barriers. This is the same path that Chinese restaurants, kosher restaurants, Italian restaurants, they were all formed in the same crucible. We're here, we're American. Not only are we not a threat, we're a benefit. Wow. Exactly how Tahira Baksh, Samin Chowdhury, and Jania Azad described their experience. It shows that we're kind of, we belong in the community, we fit, like, you know, we're here starting their own blog about halal restaurants. We called it Muslim foodies, and we didn't think it would really go anywhere. Yeah. Guess again. Our food is here, but we have to take pictures. They now have 55,000 followers on Instagram and 77,000 on TikTok. 
Have you ever been in a halal restaurant and I recognized? Yes. yes, yes. The power of halal. Yep. More than 600 Costco's and Walmarts now carry halal meat. Kroger's, Wegmans, HEB's. None wants to miss out on a $20 billion a year market. You're selling all this in one day? All of that in one day. A market Riyadh Ghazali is proud to have even a tiny slice of. Brisket, corned beef, pastrami with halal meat. Should we maybe have a little hope about what's possible in the world if we can marry those cultures? Absolutely. You have a Muslim guy running a Jewish deli. This is the new United Nations. Food is what brings people together. Ube, it's a yam native to the Philippines. Deep purple in color that's suddenly all the rage. Elaine Quijano tells us why. For the uninitiated, there's a growing purple phenomenon. Cakes, drinks, ice cream, you name it, and you'll find it in purple. It's called ube, a purple yam that's one of the rising exports and staples from the Philippines. It is a pretty photogenic ingredient, right? With that, that purple? so true. Oh my God, yes, ube is a photogenic ingredient for sure. Author and restaurateur Nicole Panseca is a connoisseur of Filipino cuisine. Ube is one of the best ingredients that you'll find that is only found in the Philippines. It's a starchy root vegetable. It can be grown underground or even an aerial tuber. You're going to find notes of vanilla and pistachio. Even the moment you cut it open, you'll know that it is ube by the smell. How easy is it to get fresh ube? Oh, not easy at all. It's only really one harvesting time in the Philippines, around this time, actually. But it's easier to find processed as dried powder, grated and frozen, or as an extract. I love people using the ingredient and curious about the culture, but even more so, I love that Filipino-Americans are getting more curious about themselves. How did you hear about us? Uh, I love ube, so... My friend told me about this place. Ginger Lim Dimapasuk and her husband run Cafe 86 in California. They've baked up over 50 ube-infused treats since 2014. For Filipinos, it's always, oh my gosh, I can't believe we have a cafe just focusing on ube. What is this? This one is the ube butter bar. You have to try that one. But for non-Filipinos, it's always... What is this purple thing? <laughs> it's always curiosity, but I believe that food is the gateway to one's culture. For Filipinos who first set foot on this continent in 1587, Ube's growing popularity represents part of their heritage taking root. Maybe to others it's a fad, but it's not going to go away like your normal fad because we're here to stay. Pie is now served, and with it, Thoughts on the common traditions that bring us together. They're from Rishi K. Shirway, musician and host of the show, Song Exploder. Before I was born, my parents didn't celebrate Thanksgiving. Not until my sister and I came into their lives. Suddenly, these Indian immigrants had Americans for kids. And in the early 80s, one day, after making turkeys out of construction paper in school, I asked if we could have a Thanksgiving dinner. And they said yes. My dad learned how to cook a turkey, and we invited some of our family friends over. 
other Indian families. So in addition to stuffing and mashed potatoes, we had a full Indian potluck. The next year we did it again, and that was it. It became a tradition. A couple years later, my mom introduced a special dessert into the menu, mango pie. It was made with Alfonso mango pulp, something you can really only find in Indian grocery stores. It's imported in these big aluminum cans, and it has a bright, punchy sweetness. She would mellow that flavor out by mixing it with Cool Whip and cream cheese to make a custard filling, and then she'd pour that into a graham cracker crust. It was, and still is, the best dessert I've ever had. In 2020, the week before Thanksgiving, my mom passed away after years of illness. We couldn't gather with others for a funeral. It was really hard, and Thanksgiving that year just didn't feel like Thanksgiving. But last year, my wife and I hosted Thanksgiving again at our house, and I made my mom's mango pie. For me, it's a way to remember her and a way to share my upbringing with others. A wonderful thing that happened before my mom passed away was that my friend Samin Nasrat, the chef and author, wrote an article for the New York Times all about my mom's pie. She created a gourmet version of my mom's humble recipe, and it got published with my mom's name right there. And suddenly, people everywhere started making mango pie. I'm still trying to find ways to share this little piece of my mom's story with the world. This year, the wonderful Portland ice cream company Salt and Straw is making an ice cream flavor based on her recipe. It's called Mom's Mango Pie. My mom, like so many moms, gave me a sense of who I am through food. She brought joy into my life and other people's lives through her cooking. And I'll always be thankful for that. I'm Jane Pauley. We wish you and yours the happiest of Thanksgivings. And please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Brighten your mornings with CBS News Sunday morning merchandise from ParamountShop.com. Shop mugs, sweatshirts, and t-shirts to start your mornings with style. Take 20% off at checkout with code SUNDAY20 at ParamountShop.com. That's 20% off at checkout on all CBS News Sunday morning products with code SUNDAY20 at ParamountShop.com.